are listening to audio from The Table. If you'd like to learn more about our community or donate to this ministry, please visit thetabletx.org. Hello, faithful podcast listeners. Brett here. It is so good to be with all of you. So we are in a series right now titled First Peter Part 2, where we're making our way through this incredible little book from the New Testament. So with that in mind, the title of my message uh, is Wives, Submission, and Finding What You're Looking For. Our primary text is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, which says this, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and the reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So uh, one of the challenges of the past few weeks is that for many of us raised in the church, um, this series of passages we've been in, they're like, well, I mean, I don't know <laughs> what else can I say. They're kind of triggering. It's uh, no doubt the same today for many of you um, with this line, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Um, in fact, I've, I've heard of uh, pastors using this text to actually advise Christian women um, who are being physically abused by their husbands to um, they use the text to encourage them to return to their husbands and submit to their quote unquote spiritual authority because you know this is the Lord's will or something um, to that effect. Just uh, I mean it's just a terrible, terrible reading and terrible outcome of of a text like this. Um, but heck, I mean even if you don't have like religious trauma and heartbreak from passages like these. Um, even if you're just newish to Christian faith, you know, a text like this, even upon a first reading, it's still pretty cringy. I mean, the language of submission is sort of suspect, like, uh, what's he getting at there? And then he seems to be saying that, um, makeup is bad. And finally, there's that whole weird line about Sarah calling her husband Lord. <laughs> what the heck? That's what my niece says at our house. What the heck? I can't imagine if my wife Maggie was like, uh, Brett, I'm, I just, I really feel like I need to be more biblical. So I'm going to start calling you Lord. Lowercase L, of course. I don't want to offend God. <laughs> um, actually, Christian writer Rachel Held Evans. Oh, God rest her soul. She went far too soon. Uh, but a number of years ago, uh, before she passed away, she wrote a book titled A Year of Biblical Womanhood. How a liberated woman found herself sitting on the roof, covering her head, and calling her husband master. Uh, we have, um, yeah, for those who are going to be in person, we have a, a picture actually of this image. I encourage you, if you have a second, to Google the title of this book just to look at the image. It might be the best book cover of all time. It's hilarious. And, uh, of course, the last um, line about calling her husband um, master um, or lord is taken from 1 Peter 3, 6. 
um, depending on the translation. Some say Lord, some say Master. Um, so basically what Evans did in this book, she took a year to try and do everything the Bible says a woman should do. Like, so for example, uh, the Bible says a woman should praise her husband at the city gate. So Evans went to some public spot. I can't quite recall exactly where, if it was like the entrance to a neighborhood or something, but she made like this homemade sign saying how awesome her husband is. And then she went there and was like holding it up as people drove by. (laughs) It's a funny book. And, um, Here's the thing, though. Evans, like, as a Christian, she isn't trying to simply mock the Bible or mock First Peter 3, 6 or something. Um, instead, she's simply trying to show the impossibility and really somewhat the silliness that results when we don't take cultural differences into account and we simply read the Bible as this flat text making timeless announcements um, rather than really what it is, which is a beautiful um, but at times flawed testimony. That's what the Bible is. It's testimony to Christ and the story of um, his people. Here's a a wonderful passage from Evan's book as she reflects, um, not just on 1 Peter, but really on, on the scriptures as a whole. She writes, if you're looking for verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you will find it. If you're looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not what does it say, but what am I looking for? I suspect Jesus knew this when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you want to do violence in this world, you will always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you will always find the balm. That's a mic drop right there by Rachel Held Evans. <laughs> so as we come to this chapter, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, um, everything Evans just named is true. If we're looking for a sexist, misogynistic text, oh, we'll find it. If we're looking for a liberating and life-giving text for women, we can find that too. So let's go searching for a liberating, life-giving reading of this passage. So to do that, uh, we need to go back, just as we've done in message after message in the series, we need to go back into Roman culture. Um, And I'll make this pretty quick since we've done a lot of this the last few weeks. Um, I should mention, though, I'll be drawing from the work of a theologian and New Testament professor um, named Caroline Johnson Hodge. So let's talk first about the household. Um, Basically, the household as understood by prominent Roman writers and intellectuals um, back in the first century was, uh, it was like a a microcosm, a a picture, a reflection of the empire itself. So the head of the household, always a free Roman citizen and male, always male, um, was not really, not just like the leader of the house, um, but was like the mini emperor of the household. Now, the household was also a business. So you had the the family business and you worked out of the house. In fact, whole wings of the house were devoted to business. 
So the husband was sort of like the, not only the emperor, but also the, the CEO or president of the company. And then the wife and the children, the slaves, um, they were all kind of the workers all contributing um, to that <clears throat> family business. But the household was also um, a mini temple of sorts. Like there were places um, kind of all over the place scattered throughout for the worship of various gods because the idea was that by worshiping the gods, well, you're tapping into the divine power to bring your household prosperity because the gods could make good or bad things happen in your life. And one of the keys to this was to have all the subordinate members of the household on the same page as to which gods we are honoring. Can you see where this is headed for conflict in the Christian community? Because remember Peter's context, Christian wives, pagan, unbelieving Roman husbands. Conflict is a Bruin. In fact, here's, this is a quote from a Roman writer um, at the time named Plutarch on this topic. He says this, a married woman should therefore worship and recognize the gods whom her husband holds dear in these alone. The door must be closed to strange cults and foreign superstitions. No god takes pleasure in cult performed furtively and in secret by a woman. You see, this is Peter's context. Like he's not writing some sort of abstract theological treatise about why God says women aren't as good as men. He's, he's a pastor trying to figure out how to have Christian women married to unbelieving husbands navigate life in their Roman household in, in a culture where, well, just to be frank, it's not like it is today. I mean, you know, today, one partner in a marriage, you know, for example, a woman could say like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm going to church. And, you know, the man will probably say like, well, okay, do what you want. Um, you know, but I'm staying home or, or I'll go with you. I, you know, but it's sort of like a decision and people are individuals and they just make individual decisions for themselves. Um, that's not how it was in the ancient world. Like, no, these many Roman emperors of their household probably weren't exactly stoked about their Christian wives, um, really doing two things. A, as we've already alluded to, deviating from the worship of the household gods, which Peter was likely encouraging them um, to do. We don't have really any evidence in the New Testament or in the book of Peter that he's, uh, you know, like, oh, it's okay, a little, a little worship of Caesar or Juno or whoever, Aphrodite on the side. Oh, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> probably not. So the, these Roman husbands probably weren't thrilled about that, deviating from the worship of the household gods. They also probably weren't thrilled about their wives joining this strange Christian cult with its it's beliefs that, that really were seen as sort of a destruction of the social order. What do I mean by destruction of the social order? Here's a quote from another Roman intellectual named Celsus, who aims the following criticism at Christians. Uh, so he says this, Christians' injunctions are like this. So now he's kind of quoting, even though he's not literally quoting Christians, but it's, you know, he's trying to kind of poke at what the Christians believe. So he says, Christians say things like this, let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, oh, let him come boldly. Now he's just talking, uh, writing his own words. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, 
They show that they, the Christians, they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. The line that stands out to me there is this. They admit that these people are worthy of their God. Who are these people? They're the people who in Roman eyes were not people at all. You see, slaves, women, children were seen as, well, I mean, it's all the adjectives Celsus attributed to the Christians. Ignorant, stupid, foolish, and dishonorable. So this brings us to the great irony of the passages, really from the last two weeks, the the one on, on slaves and now on wives. These are probably two of the most embarrassing passages for Christians in the New Testament almost certainly in the top five, (laughs) because we read them with 21st century eyes. And we say like, this guy, Peter, so backwards, more than a little sexist. And well, and here's the thing, just to be clear, I'm not here to defend everything Peter's saying. I'm not going to go line by line through the passage and point out why, you know, actually everything is awesome. I'm not going to do that. Um, But my point is, is that it is a strange twist of fate that we read Peter as this terribly backwards, kind of hyper-conservative religious person when he and his churches were being condemned by the surrounding Roman culture for being too progressive. In other words, if the Roman Celsus, that writer who we just quoted, like if he's your average Roman male, well then Peter and these early Christians... Well, my goodness, they're like wild-eyed radicals. They, they sound like uh, just complete progressive feminists almost. <laughs> In fact, the entire reason Peter's having to address these groups of people is because Christians were shaking things up with their radical inclusivity. In fact, we know from the work of sociologists um, like Rodney Stark that women absolutely flock to the early church. I mean, that's why Celsus is like, well, this is a woman's religion. Some estimates say two-thirds of the early church was women. Now, if it was so backwards and oppressive, why were they flocking to the church? Because in that cultural context, it wasn't backwards and oppressive at all. Quite the opposite. In fact, another example of Peter kind of pushing back on the sexism of his own day is seen in verse 7 with his statement where now he's addressing Christian husbands. And so he writes this, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, that language weaker kind of rubs us the wrong way. He probably just means like biologically or perhaps even just culturally, like more vulnerable. He continues, and as heirs with you. So treat them as, as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That's a great closing line, isn't it? It's almost a veiled threat. (laughs) Men, if you start acting more like Romans and less like Christians and how you treat your wives, God just might choose to ignore your petitions. (laughs) So here's the thing, church. While I don't think we need to replicate Peter in the early church's exact language or even ideas with some sort of wooden literalism like into our own lives, um, I, I do think we need to to take the spirit of the text. We need to take the trajectory of the text deep into us. Something beautiful and good 
was shifting in the first century. Let's keep the shift happening in our own day and time. Let's continue to uplift women here at the table. Let's continue to be a church where our little girls know that they can grow up and if they so desire, be pastors or leaders or fill any role in the church. Let's be a community that is clear that women fully reflect the divine image. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I lift up every woman who may be hearing my voice who has ever felt belittled by the scriptures or by the church or her leaders. I pray for every little girl who wondered if maybe she didn't really measure up. In the name of Jesus, may those lies and chains be broken. May women step forward into leadership, into full equality, and into a knowledge that they are deeply seen and valued. And may our whole church community be the better for it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.